It's always fun to sing to God, especially when Evonda puts together such a beautiful medley. Thank you for that, Evonda. She is a director and a assembler of music. Uh, so today we are continuing in our sermon series about choosing the good, which is focusing on some of what Jesus does in Luke's gospel. It's a sermon series that's about focusing on doing what is right instead of simply what is easy. Focusing on making faithful decisions, even in the times that it's difficult to do so. And over the past few weeks, we've joined Jesus on the road to Jerusalem as he continues traveling ever closer uh, to Jerusalem into a confrontation with the religious leaders who will be there. We've watched him with Martha and with Mary. We've seen him teach his disciples how to pray. And in both situations, Jesus does something unexpected. And as we continue to journey through Luke's gospel, as we continue to draw nearer to Jerusalem, we're going to see more unexpected actions from our Lord. And this morning, our scripture is taken from the gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. You can follow along in your bulletins, or you can use your Red Pew Bibles, going to the New Testament section, page 74. This is Luke 12, 13 through 21. Listen now for God's word to you. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or an arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to the crowd, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, oh, what should I do? For I have no place to store all my crops. They weren't bananas at that time, by the way. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And those things you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy God, shine your light of truth upon this word for us. Be gracious to our seeking and grant that we may hear and understand what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in the name of the word made flesh, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It can be a really good feeling when someone turns and looks to you for advice. It's especially great when someone looks to you for advice in a topic that you've got a great deal of knowledge and experience in. And Jesus, God's son, certainly has knowledge and experience in applying, you know, God's law. He was there when God gave it to Moses, after all, knows it intimately. 
And on top of this, the person calling out to Jesus from the crowd was almost certainly crying out for some sort of justice. This should have been a slam dunk case for Jesus. Where Jesus tells the man, yes, you're right. Your brother should divide the inheritance with you. So why does Jesus respond the way that he does? Why doesn't he grant the man justice? Well, I think in order to understand this, we need to transport ourselves into Jesus' context for a little bit. And, and, and for this, I'm so grateful to the scholar Ken Bailey. I've been, I think, referring to Ken Bailey on and off over the last few sermons. He uh, has done some really great work on cultural norms and expectations in the New Testament. And he notes that in Jesus' context, when the father of a family died, all the property would be passed to his sons. That's how it worked in Jesus' time. Now, the firstborn would receive a double portion of the property of the father, and then the rest would be meted out uh, more or less evenly among the rest of the sons. And it would be the firstborn's job to be the executor of the estate. Uh, He was the one who, who got it and who would then transfer it to the sons. However, this didn't need to happen. The property didn't need to be divided. In fact, it was common in the ancient Near East for extended families to live together under the same roof, on the same property, and to help one another raise kids, to help one another take care of the land, and so on and so forth. In fact, this was often the preferred situation. After all, most of the family inheritance, it wasn't liquid. It wasn't something you could just go down to first source bank and withdraw and then divide. It didn't work that way. So much of the property was tied up in land, in crops, in, uh, in animals. To divide the inheritance would be to sell off a bunch of this stuff and effectively start over in terms of your livestock, in terms of your property, in terms of your crops. So since all the property passed to the firstborn as the executor of the estate, there was occasionally conflict between the firstborn and his brothers. You could imagine this happening. I I mean, what if one of the brothers wants to divide the property and the firstborn doesn't or vice versa? Any of you who have experienced the sort of drama that can occur in trying to figure out a will or trying to deal with someone's desires after they've died, you know that this can be a source of great conflict and great anxiety within families. And it was the case then too. And so rabbis had come to the conclusion that if one party wanted the inheritance divided, that's what would happen. It was better to divide it and sort of, you know, be bummed out that we had to start over than to make one person who wanted it divided go along with trying to cooperate and keep it together. So this is all that's in the background of this morning's scripture reading. And suddenly, with all this in the background, the request of the man from the crowd is a little more complicated, I think. It it may well be a cry for justice. It might be that his older brother is dragging his feet and dividing the estate because maybe he just doesn't like his younger brother. That happens in families sometimes. But it may also be that the older brother yearns for the family to hold together 
hoping that the younger brother may agree that familial unity is more important than getting his share of dad's stuff. Uh, Certainly the younger son has the right to insist on the division of the inheritance, but he also has the responsibility to understand that he's called to use what he's been given for more than just himself, more than simply his own advancement. So it's this context that leads to Jesus' caution, his warning, and then his parable. And we're going to take up the parable first. The parable is often called the parable of the rich fool. And we'll take that up before considering Jesus' charge, Jesus' caution that he gives to the crowd. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this parable is that the rich man has done nothing wrong. Sometimes we look at rich people and we kind of cock our eyebrows as if to say, where did you get that money from? Jesus does not judge the rich man as having done anything wrong. Probably he was a good steward of what he'd been given. It's not like he'd stolen his wealth from someone else or or been heartless toward the poor. None of this is what's going on here. We can assume he's simply a hard worker who's made thoughtful decisions. And it's no fault or credit to him that he experiences a bumper crop this year, just as it's no fault or credit to the stock trader when the stocks go up or when the stocks go down. This parable is not leveling a blanket condemnation of money or of wealth or of good stewardship. So so what is it? If that's not it, what is it that leads to God showing up and calling this man a fool? I think we see a hint of it in how this man makes decisions. Who does he consider? In his thinking, how many times does he think about himself? And how many times does he think about someone else? I actually want this to be something we do together. Would you do this with me? Grab your bulletin or your Bible or whatever you were reading the scripture on and take a look at what the rich man says. If you're using your bulletin, this is starting on the fifth line of your bulletin, uh, since I don't put verse numbers in the bulletin. Um, if you're using the scripture passage, it's on verse, 15, excuse me, verse 17, beginning with, and he thought to himself. And I want you to look at the next couple of lines and count how many times the words I or my appear. Take a minute, and once you've gotten a number, call that out. I hear six times for I. Uh-huh. And then if you're counting mys, how much do you get there? Six combined. I keep going with the passage. I'm sorry. There's, there's, there's a little more after his first dialogue with himself. I'm sorry. Uh, six eyes and five mys. Is that right? Something like that? When I counted, I got 11. So six and five makes sense to me. Yeah? Nice. Okay. Marcia's checked my math. Thank you, Marcia. I I mean, whether you get 11, whether you get 10 or or whatever, he's thinking a lot about himself. And then if you, if you keep reading and you see him talk to himself and say soul, I mean, you could count that too. Like you could, get, you could get up to 13 or 14 times in like three verses. This guy's got a plan for himself and not a plan for many other people. Who, the, the person that matters the most to the rich man is himself. 
Certainly, the rich man has the right to make decisions about his own property, and he's got the right to make his own decisions on his own. But he also has a responsibility to use what he's been given for more than just himself. The rich man is made poor, I think, by his failure to engage with or to think about others. And again, I'm grateful to Ken Bailey, uh, this scholar, for pointing this out. He, he He noticed that leading men in a village in Jesus' time, they would regularly discuss even like the tiny transactions with one another. We're talking the stuff that you don't even keep receipts for, right? They would discuss even minor transactions with one another for hours, verbally processing with one another and generally having an enjoyable conversation at the city gates. This is like, you know, when, when you go to the bank, not because you can't do online banking, but because you want to have a good conversation with the teller or with the other people who go to the bank at the same time you do, right? This is, this is the social interaction you get in that day. And Ken Bailey suggests that in his experience, there's sometimes a subtle pressure on the part of the leading people in the city, the village elders. There's sometimes a subtle pressure not to introduce information that would solve the problem being discussed. Because if you were to solve the problem, you'd stop the wonderful conversation going on. By refusing to engage in this communal discernment, by refusing to bring others in to his conversation about what to do with his wealth, the rich man effectively isolates himself from the wisdom of other people, effectively isolates himself from community and isolates himself from friendship. I think this happens, again, not just in Jesus' time, but also in ours. There's any number of reasons we might self-isolate. There's a number of reasons we might focus perhaps more on our work than on our familial relationships or our friendships. Maybe, you know, we're pursuing something at work. Or, or, or maybe we don't want to engage in the communities we've been a part of because we feel betrayed by them for one reason or another. We can't find a way to agree with them on something. Maybe we've had a falling out with family members. I wonder if you've known people who've experienced one of these things. Maybe known someone who is obsessed with work. These are the people who are constantly at work, even when they're at home, right? They may be bodily at home, but they're really at work. They're climbing the corporate ladder. They don't make time for friends or family members. These are the people who are in search of meaning, thinking that the next promotion the next deal, the next project, that that'll be what gives their life something worth living. Once they get this, they'll be able to make time for family or for friends. Maybe you know these people quite intimately because they're the person who stares back at you in the mirror. There are times when you've got a season of busyness, which is well and good. Uh, A season of starting a new gig or getting the hang of changes. This happens. Family and friends they're often filled with grace for this. They generally understand. But there are some of us who find our identity and our work to the degree that if we stop hustling, if we stop the grind, we aren't sure who or what we are. The rich man might be like this. Perhaps he misses out on the relationships because he's so concerned about thriving at work, making sure that he's got a lot stored up. Case of a rainy day. Or maybe the rich man is more like the person who's had a falling out with family or friends, has a disagreement in his community. Maybe the rich man had a falling out with the village or the city elders. Maybe he separated himself from their company. 
Some of you may be familiar with the author and theologian C.S. Lewis, uh, who, who wrote quite a, a number of things. One of the uh, works of fiction he wrote is a, a little book called The Great Divorce. It's a, a wonderful little book in which C.S. Lewis imagines what the afterlife might look like. His depiction of hell or, you know, purgatory, depending on your interpretation, it's a place of infinite space in which people continuously move further and further away from one another in order to seek true independence and avoid unpleasant interactions. And this image has stuck with me for some time. It's an image that I get when I think about the ways that we don't engage in community because we've had a disagreement or a falling out. Because I think living in community with people who have different thoughts and opinions than we have, that's a difficult thing to do. It's been really hard for those of us who've been engaged uh, in, in talking about anything political over the last six years. Uh, you could extend that over the last 12 years, um, where it seems like there's no middle ground to be had. You're either for me or against me. There's quarreling that occurs. Disagreements that run deeper than just a difference of opinion. But I think we need to remember that the opposite of living in community with people who are different than us, the opposite of that isn't living with people who are the same. Because the more we self-isolate from people who are different than we are, the more it is that tiny differences with the people who are mostly the same as we are, the more it is these tiny differences become issues worth dividing over. When we insist on only being with those who agree with us, we're going to ultimately separate from everyone except ourselves. The opposite of being within community with people who disagree with us is living in self-isolation ultimately. And this is why C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce comes to mind for me with this parable. Perhaps this rich man has self-isolated because he's consistently removed from his life anyone who disagrees with him for any reason. And suddenly he's left with no one to dialogue with. He's left with no one to be friends with. And he simply has to think about things on his own. He's effectively removed himself from community. There's not a middle option here. We can either hang out and be in community with folks who are different than we are, who we might disagree with, or we can self-isolate. And I want you to take note that Jesus doesn't make a judgment call in this parable about the plan that the rich man makes. Jesus makes a judgment call of fool because the man shunned relationships and shunned community, either in favor of only being with those who would agree with him or in favor of building his own wealth, one or the other. To put all his eggs in that basket, assuming he's got decades left with himself to enjoy what he has, that is foolish. Just as the rich man didn't control the abundant crops, so too he doesn't control the time of his death, the number of days he has left to live. And so just as the younger brother who asked Jesus to side with him against the older brother who refused to divide the inheritance, just as the younger brother has every right to demand his share of the inheritance, so too did the rich man have every right to steward his wealth however he wanted and just as the rich man had a responsibility to use what he was given for more than just himself, so too did the younger brother have a responsibility to look beyond his own needs and desires. 
This is what's behind the general warning Jesus opens the parable with when he says, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I can't tell you as an individual whether you've focused your life on the abundance of possessions. That's something that's between you and God. I'm not up here today to tell you to give more to the poor, to tell you to give more to the church. That's a sermon for another day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But I do think that Jesus wants for us to recognize the lie, the insidious lie that can take root inside our hearts. The lie that we don't need God, that we don't need one another, that we can be self-sufficient apart from a community that loves and cares for us. That if we just get enough distance away from those kind of people, don't mean to point at you, Brenners, I'm sorry. If we can get enough distance away from those kind of people, then we'll be happy. If we can get enough stored up that we don't have to deal with the other type of person, then we can eat, drink, and be merry. That is a lie. The abundance of possessions runs counter to the abundance of life that God desires for us. We're called to use what we've been given for more than just ourselves. We therefore have a calling to be in relationship with one another, in community with one another, so that we can both give to and receive from others. This is what abundant life means. Instead of focusing on things, to focus on people. Instead of focusing on our rights, to focus on our responsibilities. After all, that's what God did for us. May we also be formed in the image and likeness of our Savior, doing for others what he did for us, considering our responsibilities, considering others. May it be so. Amen.